Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a bloke whose name was Joseph Boulogne, uh, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. I've uh, been practicing very hard to get that one right. Uh, absolutely fascinating fella, old Joseph was, uh, for several reasons. If you bung this bloke's name into Spotify now, you'll find a huge catalogue of classical music, symphonies, operas, concertos, all sorts of stuff. But if you, uh, but you also, you'll also notice if you, uh, you know, if you go and look this bloke up, you'll see that most pictures of him feature him holding a sword, because on top of being a, a very talented composer and musician, he was also a gifted swordsman. And it doesn't stop there either. He was also a senior officer during the French, French Revolution, uh, navigating both, uh, you know, treacherous battlefields and also treacherous political uh, situations within the, uh, the, you know, the, the fervor of the early uh, of revolutionary France. In short, basically, this bloke seemed to have carpeted his fair bloody share of DMs. I can tell you that much. Um, and uh, his success as a fencer and as a musician and a, as a soldier and everything else, it's all the more remarkable when you learn that he was the son of an African slave. The deck was well and truly stacked against Bologna as a, you know, as, as a person of colour, uh, but that didn't stop him from becoming an extremely bloody remarkable figure. Uh, usually you'd think, you know, being a, an accomplished classical composer, the very first, might I, might I add, the very first classical composer of, uh, of African ancestry, usually you'd think that sort of thing would be enough or that, you know, training to become a champion fencer, that'd take up enough of your time. But no, 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 no. All this wasn't enough for our mate, uh, our mate Joseph here, who also found time in his busy schedule to lead a legion of soldiers during the French Revolution as well. I mean, yeah, talk about a bloody overachiever. Settle down, Joseph, old son. You're making the rest of us look bad. Anyway, how did this fella... Born to a slave in the Caribbean, how did this fellow go on to become so well known to history? Let's find out. Strap yourselves in here. We'll get underway with the story of Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. I'm very, very, very proud of myself for that. I, I, I did. I checked in with a couple of French friends to see how I went with that one, and it was, it was just, it was green lights across the board. Very proud of myself there. Anyway, we're going all the way back, all the way back to 1745 here, to 1745 to uh, Bailiff, an area on the island of Basseterre in Guadalupe, a, or Guadeloupe? I'm not sure how to pronounce that, actually. Should have, should have, I, I kind of patted myself on the back a little bit too much with just getting this guy's name right. Now all the other French words I'm going to absolutely butcher. Anyway, Guadeloupe, a uh, French colony in the Caribbean, and today Guadeloupe is actually part of France itself. Uh, despite being in the Caribbean, it, it is just an actual literal part of France, and, and therefore it's part of the EU. It uses the euro and everything, which I think is pretty interesting. Anyway, back then, Guadeloupe was a major source of many crops, sugar, coffee, cocoa, uh, all of them, of course, very, very profitable for uh, colonial France, uh, and especially profitable, of course, due to the fact that the plantations were all worked by slaves that had been transported from Africa. And it was one of these slaves, it was on one of these slave plantations, uh, that one of these slaves, uh, an enslaved woman by the name of Anne, often known as Nanon, uh, worked as a maid for a woman named Elizabeth Merican. And uh, Marie-Can, she was uh, she was married to a bloke named Georges Boulogne de Saint-Georges, uh, the de Saint-Georges being a, a fancy noble title given to him by the French royal court. 
Anyway, Georges, he ends up uh, playing away with his wife's maid, with Nanon here. Um, and so on the 25th of December in 1745, she gives birth to young Joseph, right? Now, Georges, he actually acknowledges the child as his own and he gives Joseph his last name, Bologna. Uh, although uh, Joseph is ineligible to inherit the uh, de Saint-Georges title due to his race, due to his ancestry, due to the fact that he's an illegitimate child. Now, at the time, French slavery was dominated by the Code Noir, a a decree that set out the code of laws that govern slaves, free people of colour, religion, and even even Jews, Jewish people. The the Jews were uh, prohibited from being in France's colonies uh, at all under under the Code Noir. Um, so under this incredibly racist legal system, uh, you know, that was obviously highly typical for the time, uh, young Joseph, he couldn't inherit his father's title. He couldn't, he couldn't expect to rise very high in French society. Uh, but he bloody did. I'll tell you this, he bloody did, because uh, nonetheless, and perhaps in spite of the Code Noir, in 1753, Georges took Joseph, who was only seven at the time, uh, across the Atlantic to France. Uh, he was determined to see that he was properly educated as the son of a minor nobleman. So he enrolled his young boy in a boarding school in Paris and then hopped back on a ship and went back to the plantation. <laughs> went back to the plantation quite a little bit. He drops him off. Yep, see you, mate. Uh, have a good day. Have a good day have a good couple of years at school and I'll uh, I'll see you again soon but no look he didn't stay he didn't stay long in the other uh, back on the, back on the Caribbean the other side of the Atlantic there after 2 years he headed back to France this time with Nanon at his side uh, in 1755 Georges and Nanon are reunited with their young son Joseph and the three of them they move into an, impar- an apartment together uh, in Paris um, interestingly, poor old Elizabeth, uh, she's completely fallen out of the picture here. I've got no idea what happened to her. She didn't die or anything. She was still alive. She lived until 1801. Um, and she and Georges uh, had at least one child together who ended up inheriting Georges' entire plantation over there in Guadeloupe. So I, I've got, I really have, don't have any idea what happened to uh, Elizabeth beyond this, but I do know that um, that, uh, that Georges, uh, the dad, and Nanon, the mistress, they end up over on the other side of the uh, the Atlantic in Paris with, uh, with their young son. Son, uh, again, who is, uh, you know, uh, getting a, a proper education uh, uh, there back in France. Anyway, we can, mount, we can now move away from his sort of family situation. Talk, we'll focus more properly on the hero of our tale here, Joseph Boulogne, as, uh, as he grew up uh, to become the, the masterful swordsman and the composer that he's known as today. At the age of 13, he was enrolled at the Royal Polytechnic Academy for Fencing and Horsemanship, where he studied under weapon master Tessier de la Boissier. Uh, that's my best. That that's got it's a lot of lot of dots and and little commas and all sorts of stuff going on with that name. So I'm doing my best there. I do apologise once again unreservedly to all the francophones listening. Uh, this was the bloke who actually invented the fencing mask, right? So he's, he he knew his eggs well and truly. Anyway, um, Joseph apparently was so talented that he quickly eclipsed all the other students within a very very short time of of joining up in the academy, and he was beating fully trained fencing masters by the age of fifteen. So word of this young gun or this young sword, I guess that that that. that metaphor kind of falls apart. Anyway, word of Joseph and his prowess, it spreads far and wide. Uh, while he was still a student, he actually ended up dueling, uh, again, many of the great fencing masters, including a bloke whose name was Alexandre Picard, um, a very famous, very, very skilled fencing master who had actually been mocking uh, Joseph in public. Picard has been had been slandering him as uh, Boissier's mulatto. So our mate, he stepped up to defend his good name here. Uh, and this fencing match, it attracted a lot of attention, of course, a lot of attention. There was uh, there was heavy betting on on both of these blokes. The match actually kind of took on 
wider political implications with abolitionists and, and opponents of slavery supporting M.A. Joseph, while proponents of slavery, those who supported slavery, uh, taking Picard's side and hoping that, uh, you know, he would uh, give give this young, uh, this young uh, duelist uh, a bit of a drubbing there. But as you probably guessed, the young hero, he wiped the floor with Picard, even as a student. Again, quite, a, quite an accomplishment for such a young man. Uh, and in doing so, cemented his reputation as a masterfully talented swordman. Again, putting you know, uh, putting the old masters, putting people who had been training for years and years and years, the, the most famous swordsman of the time, putting them to shame was uh, was uh, certainly a way for him to uh, entrench his reputation again as a, as, as a master of the blade. Interestingly. As well, in the wake of this duel, uh, his dad was so pleased with him. George was so, so proud of his young son for this achievement that he bought him a horse and carriage, which I, which I guess is the 18th century equivalent of your parents buying you a car for doing well in your exams. Now, look, I wasn't able to, you know, confirm whether or not Joseph went and did, you know, sick burnouts down on the bloody Champs-Élysées or anything. But still, he was, uh, he was, he was uh, you know, burning around. Um, he was cutting about Paris in his, in his brand new horse and carriage, having a great time. And he eventually, uh, he eventually graduated from Bossier's uh, Academy in 1766 at the age of 21. And he was immediately made an officer of the King's Bodyguard and knighted. He was known henceforth as Chevalier de Saint-Georges. He was given a noble title. Never mind that the law prohibited him as, you know, an illegitimate child and African slave from inheriting his dad's title. He just got one of his own instead. So from that from that moment onwards, he became known as the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And we're going to call him Saint-Georges from this time onwards uh, because, yeah, again, that that's generally how he's known throughout history. Anyway. All of the stuff we've talked about so far, we've got a pretty good beat on this. We know that he was a talented swordsman. We know how he became one. We know that he trained and practiced at this academy under the watchful eye of his masters. Um, and we know that after he graduated, he continued to train and fence with uh, with other swordsmen and, uh, and I guess for that matter, other swordswomen as well. Uh, he trained alongside Thomas Alexandre Dumas, uh, who you can hear all about uh, in episode 70. Quite a remarkable story there. Uh, Louis-Philippe Joseph Delon. Uh, oh, geez, butchered that one. I was, I was going so well. Louis-Philippe Joseph Delon. Orléans. D'Orléans. Bloody hell. Who would go on to become, he'd go on to become the, the, the Duke of Orléans. He comes into the story a little bit later on, as indeed does the very famous Chevalier Dion, um, a diplomat, a spy who lived as both a man and a woman. Uh, we'll talk about these three a bit later on. Uh, all three of them back, come back into um, into Saint-Georges' story. Uh, on top of this, on top of this as well, we also know for sure that he became a very popular figure amongst the French aristocracy, given his proficiency with the blade. But it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there because the bloke was also a very skilled rider and an excellent dancer as well. The really the very the very picture of French aristocratic virtue in the in the eighteenth century. But again, it didn't stop there because we also know that this bloke was very popular with noble women in particular. Very very popular indeed, you might say. And it's generally thought that he had. Uh, more than his fair share of liaisons with uh, with a fair few highborn ladies in his time, so we know all this for certain. All the all the swordsmanship, the riding, and the dancing, and uh, and the what have you. But what we don't know, what we don't know, is how he became an incredibly accomplished musician. We'll leave the swordsmanship to one side for the moment. We're going to talk about Saint George's career as a composer and as a performer because. In 1769, three years after his graduation from the Academy, right, Saint-Georges absolutely stunned Paris by performing as part of François-Joseph Gossec's orchestra 
playing the violin. Now, Gossek, he was another classical composer, um, uh, and we know now that he'd been associated with Saint-Georges for a few years before uh, Saint-Georges made his, uh, his you know, uh, public musical uh, debut, as he dedicated several pieces of music to Saint-Georges in uh, as early as 1766. But in 1769, right, those who knew Saint-Georges uh, as a swordsman and as a fencer, they were amazed to see him on stage as part of Gossek's orchestra, um, Le Concert d'Amateurs. I don't know how to pronounce it properly. The Concert of Amateurs, basically, is what, it, is, is what it's called. But, I, I, you know, I don't think amateur mean what means. Well, look, it was a really good orchestra, right? I don't know why. It was very confusing. They called themselves the Amateurs. Maybe it was to manage expectations. It was a very, very well-respected and very talented orchestra. One of the, one of the best orchestras in France at the time, um, it, it has to be said. Uh, and even today, right, even today, we've got no explanation as to how or, or when or where he learnt to play the violin, let alone how, you know, we can't begin to explain how he you know, was able to compose and conduct ensemble music in the way that he did. There's an apocryphal story about one of his former slave masters teaching the violin at a young age, but that's been widely widely discredited. We simply don't know for certain about, uh, you know, anything about how he came uh, became a musician. There are theories about him studying with musicians such as Jean-Marie Leclerc or Pierre Gavignez, but none of this is, none of this is close to being conclusive. But... Uh, However he did it, in any case, in his early 20s, Saint-Georges revealed himself as a musician of considerable skill playing in this, uh, in this, uh, in, in Le Concert d'Amateur until, uh, until 1773, when Gossek actually gave direction of the orchestra over to Saint-Georges himself. Now, the orchestra with Saint-Georges at the helm already, I mean, before, before this had already in, enjoyed a very, a very good reputation, and that reputation seemed to only grow uh, with, uh, with Saint-Georges uh, leading things as the, as the conductor and, and, and as the concertmaster. Uh, it had an excellent reputation for, uh, you know, its, uh, for, for its skill, for, for, uh, for the entertainment, the performances it had put on. But it seems that Saint-Georges himself was known for, in the words of one historian, enrapturing especially the feminine members of his audience. Uh, his audience was, uh, his orchestra was, sorry, was one of the most preeminent, as I say, one of the most preeminent French, French orchestras of, of the time. And it enjoyed a widespread praise for its performances. But uh, Saint-Georges went a lot further than that because he wrote his own compositions too. He wasn't just performing and conducting other people's works. He actually wrote a lot of music himself. He helped to popularise the string quartet in France. Austrian composers such as uh, Franz Josef Haydn had had great uh, su success with uh, quartets in Vienna. And Saint-Georges were amongst the very first uh, that, that were actually published in France. Uh, he also wrote concertos and symphonies, as well as other pieces for chamber groups, for smaller for smaller instrumental groups. Most of his music was written between 1771 and 1779, uh, uh, while he was in charge of this orchestra, until it was disbanded in, uh, in 1781 after running out of money. Now, obviously, it sounds like Saint Georges was uh, was was kicking goals with both feet throughout this period in his in his life. He was in charge of a popular popular music group. He was writing his own compositions. He was having a great time. No worries at all. Uh, such was his reputation. In fact, that he even acted as a music tutor for Queen Marie Antoinette herself. So he had connections all the way up to the royal, the French royal family. Uh, the two of them, apparently they got like a house on fire. But of course, he also did face some very unique challenges due to his mixed-race uh, mixed ancestry. Uh, and these challenges held him back in some very significant ways. For example, in 1776, he was considered as the next director of the Paris Opera, which was struggling with both money and performances. And he was the natural choice, of course. He was the leader of one of the most popular, one of the most preeminent French orchestras at the time. So he was the, natu he was the natural choice for this position. However, 
three of the leading singers of the Paris Opera itself actually refused to, in their words, I'll make this clear, in their words, they said that they would refuse to submit to the orders of a mulatto. Now, these three singers, they petitioned Queen, Ara- uh, Queen Marie Antoinette herself to intervene and prevent the appointment. Now, obviously, Marie Antoinette got on very well with Saint-Georges, and uh, might, this may have caused, uh, you know, a bit of a scandal for the Queen, uh, a bit of embarrassment for her as she had to, you know, navigate a very delicate political situation. And so Saint-Georges actually took the high road and, and was very gallant because when he found out about this, he decided to withdraw his name from consideration rather than have the have the Queen be forced to intervene directly and thereby, you know, potentially cause a political scandal or, or some kind of embarrassment for her. So really, I mean, a, a good egg, you'd have to say, our mate uh, Saint-Georges there in, uh, in, in looking after Marie Antoinette and her reputation as Queen there. Definitely, definitely, you know, a very noble thing to have done. And while, I mean, I will say as well, there was some sort of laser-guided karma here as well, because while poor Saint-Georges didn't actually get the position that he so richly deserved, Queen Marie Antoinette made sure that no one did as a result. You know, she was quite sympathetic to him in his plight, and so uh, she influenced her husband, uh, Louis XVI, to act. And as it happened, as I say, no one got the position when Louis assumed royal control over the opera himself and delegated its direction to one of his ministers instead of a replacement for a Saint-Georges. So, I mean, as for Saint-Georges himself, he, he, he didn't, uh, the bounce wasn't too bad for him in this situation because he, he seemed to have, uh, he seemed to have a, a, a well and truly a rusted on fan in Marie Antoinette. I'll uh, tell you what, so much so that he was invited to uh, many of her private musical concerts in Versailles uh, with some of the, you know, the biggest knobs around, some of the highest, the, you know, the, the, the highest nobles in the land uh, came to these small concerts here, uh, where he both watched and took part in the performances, sometimes playing with the Queen herself. Um, uh, Saint-Georges, in addition uh, to his orchestral and his chamber works, he also wrote a few operas as well. The first one uh, called Ernestine. It debuted in 1777 with Marie Antoinette in attendance, and it was a total failure, actually. It fell, it fell completely flat. It, actually, it, was, it was really bad. People hated it. It was resoundingly panned, uh, and even Marie Antoinette, herself wasn't a fan. Now, it wasn't necessarily the music. Um, you know, I, I, from what I read about the performance, apparently the music itself was fine. You know, people weren't too critical of that. It was the, it was actually the libretto, the, um, uh, the, 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 the script, I guess you'd call it, that drew ridicule and, uh, and scorn. But again, having his name attached to it wasn't great. Uh, for his musical career, but he didn't give up. He didn't give up. Uh, he didn't give up on opera. He wrote several others, which were which were much better received. Maybe he was a little more selective in the in the people that he worked with when it came to writing librettos. There, he did uh, he he did he did a much better job with some of his later operas. And it was during this time, interestingly as well, it was during this time while writing his se- second opera that he took up residence in the mansion of the Duke of Orleans, a, a high-ranking French aristocrat. You'll remember I mentioned Louis Philippe, uh, who Saint Georges had trained with. The Duke of Orléans was was his dad, right? Philippe's dad was the Duke of Orléans at the time, uh, so he had an existing connection to the family already. And while living there uh, and and being part, I guess, of the court of the Duke of Orléans, there, uh, he not only worked as a musician writing operas, he also gained the position as the Duke's lieutenant of the hunt. Imagine this. In the morning, he's off bloody riding horses through the forest, shooting at deer or whatever. In the evening, he's sitting at home at his desk, writing his next opera. I mean, talk about a man of many talents. Think of that. 
Interestingly as well, another interesting thing that uh, emerged from this period in his life, while staying with the Duke, Saint-Georges almost certainly made the acquaintance of another famous composer, a composer so famous, in fact, that his name these days has become almost synonymous with classical music. I'm talking, of course, of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who stayed with the Duke of Orléans for over two months while uh, our good friend Chevalier de, de Saint-Georges was also staying there. So it's, almost, it's a more or less a certainty that, uh, that the two of them actually met. Now, there's not a lot of concrete historical evidence when it comes to their interactions or their relationship. Um, some sources indicate they didn't get on too well at all. And um, this actually does stand up to the sort of speculation when you contextualise the careers of the two men at this stage. Because at this point in his career, Saint-Georges, he was popular, dashing, he was in with the Queen, very successful, apart from, you know, that... that that one opera, oops, um, and in charge of what was, of course, a very, very popular and successful orchestra. On the other hand, at this point in Mozart's career, he was a foreigner in a strange land, didn't speak the language very well. He was poor, bordering on destitute, as people weren't paying him for the commissions that he'd, uh, that he'd completed. He was mourning the death of his mother. And to top it all off, right, for poor old Mozart, his music, which today is seen as you know, almost the pinnacle of, uh, of of classical music. He's up there alongside, you know, legends such as Beethoven and, and, and Bach and Brahms and these other, other legendary figures. You know, he's, if not amongst them, at the very top of this pile, Mozart, at the time, at the time during this, this period in his life. His music wasn't very well received at all. He wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't particularly appreciated, and he wasn't making very much money off it. So he really was at a very, very low point in his career. And so there is speculation, right, that Mozart actually resented Saint Georges for his success, which does seem reasonable enough on the face of it. Although, again, it's difficult to uh, to conclusively prove one way or the other because very, very little evidence of. Of the of the timbre of their relationship exists, um, uh, you know, it's it's almost certain they met because again they lived in the in the same mansion. But again, they may not have had too much to do with each other. Anyway, in 1781, as I mentioned before, Saint Georges' orchestra ran out of money and it collapsed. But Saint Georges, luckily for him, he fell on his feet. He was a Freemason. I didn't mention that before. He actually he joined the free he joined the Freemasons a number of years beforehand. And he used his connections at this point to found a new Masonic orchestra called Le Concert Olympique. Uh, now, this, this orchestra, it outstripped even the previous one that he'd been in charge of, the Concert d'Amateurs, um, in terms of reputation, in terms of popularity. And it was actually successful enough as probably the, the leading orchestra in the entire country. That was probably the most famous and most popular French orchestra. I mean, maybe that's up for debate, but it, it was definitely in the conversation anyway. Um, at the time, and it was, as I say, it was so successful, it was so popular that it was able to commission Haydn himself to write six symphonies. And today, these works are known as the Paris symphonies, and they were first performed, very, very famous indeed, they were first performed and first conducted by Saint-Georges himself as part of Le Concert Olympique. Interestingly, Marie Antoinette liked the symphonies so much, right, that one of them, is named after her, and she would often turn up unannounced to these performances. Now, given her predilection to do this, right, the, the orchestra would often perform, just in case, 
in full court dress. You know, you couldn't you couldn't have the bloody queen turn up and have you dressed in your you know dressed like a slob in your bloody tracky dacks playing your violin. No. So there were the, these uh, the, the the orchestra. They would take the stage dressed richly in these uh, you know these embroidered garments with silver and gold and all that sort. Of, all the all the the frippery of the of the late eighteenth century. You can imagine what they looked like there, right? They're 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 bloody you know sawing away at their violins or tootling away on the flute at the back there, you know, dressed up, dressed to the nines, got the sword on the side as you as you have to have the, the, the great big bloody hat with all the feather feathers in it, all that sort of stuff, you know, just in case the Queen turned up. Absolutely brilliant. The long and the short of it here is that Saint-Georges enjoyed fame and fortune, popularity as a musician, uh, as a musician, and also still known for his proficiency with the sword. He didn't, uh, he didn't, he didn't uh, give up any of that, even even during uh, the peak of his career as a musician. But nonetheless, nonetheless, his day-to-day life was still plagued with prejudice and injustice from uh, from from many, from all quarters. You know, something that doubtlessly affected his attitudes and his behaviours in the coming years. Because in the 1780s, as the French Revolution drew closer and closer, Saint-Georges began, uh, began to become directly involved in politics. And, uh, and as he did so, he was torn in two very dif- different directions, as we'll discover. In, uh, in 1785, the Duke of Orléans, his patron, died. And with his death came the end, uh, came the end of Saint-Georges' position uh, in his mansion. Now, um, I mentioned before that Saint-Georges was actually good mates with the Duke's son, Louis-Philippe, or just, just Philippe, uh, who then, of course, went on to become the new Duke. Uh, so uh, Saint-Georges was still, you know, he was still looked after. He still had a, a noble patron, whatever else. But Philippe was a very, very different man from his father. He was, despite being an, an aristocrat, he was actually in opposition to absolute monarchy and had a great deal of sympathy uh, for for the revolutionaries, for the people who were you know seeking great political reform within France, he was also a bit of an Anglophile. He admired the uh, the British parliamentary system and uh, and sought similar reforms in France. Uh, obviously, you know they didn't come about as we all know. Uh, took a very very different, <laughs> very very different. We didn't move into a constitutional monarchy. Moved into a very different direction with the French Revolution, as we'll come to. But the other thing that uh, that Philippe was interested in. And, and this is where Saint-Georges and his mixed-race heritage uh, as the son of a slave is uh, so important. The other thing that he was interested in was the British abolitionist movement. So as a result, right, Philippe suggested that Saint-Georges travel to London to meet with abolitionists there and then come back and inform Philippe of the plans and the actions of this uh, this British anti-slavery movement so it could then pick up some steam in France as well. So they could bring those ideas, the abolitionist ideas, into France and, and, and seek to uh, seek to pursue them uh, in France as well, you know, in, in the uh, in this sort of political atmosphere of, uh, of, of potential great upheaval. So off Saint-Georges goes, you, off he goes to Britain, he packs up his sword, packs up his violin, he hits the road and he travels to London. And there he stayed with another old friend of his from the academy. Uh, and just as uh, just as Philippe had asked him to, he connected himself with uh, with British abolitionists. You know, he went and had meetings and discussions with Wilberforce and Wilkes and uh, and Clarkson and all the rest of them. Um, and and so in doing so, was able to you know bring bring back a great a great many new ideas back to France about uh, about abol- the abolitionist movement and, and other ways that you know other things that could be enacted upon uh, in 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 the French campaign as well. That's sort of taken from from the British. But that wasn't all he did. That wasn't all he did. Uh, you know, it wasn't just furthering the cause of abolitionism uh, as well. He also put his skills with the sword on display, taking part in many exhibition fencing matches. Uh, the most famous of which uh, the, uh, took place 
with the Prince of Wales himself, uh, the man who would go on to become George IV of the United Kingdom. Um, St. George, he sparred with the prince uh, before going on to duel other skilled fencing masters that had been uh, invited to this, uh, to, the, to this exhibition, including uh, someone who I mentioned before, the, the very famous Chevalier de Lyon. Uh, the story of Dion is an absolutely incredible one. Uh, born as, you get ready for this one, Charles Genevieve Louis Auguste André Timothy Dion de Beaumont in 1728, uh, Chevalier Dion lived as both a man and a woman uh, throughout a career famous for diplomacy, espionage, and of course, mastery of the sword. Um, and it was in 1787 when this famous duel took place between Dion and Saint-Georges. Um, and at, at this point, Dion, Dion was living as a woman and actually took part in the duel, right, wearing this enormous billowing black dress and a great big fancy hat. Uh, they dueled before, uh, years ago, when uh, Dion was uh, living as a man, but uh, this was quite a spectacle as Dion was, at this stage, 59 years of age. So it really was, it really was a, a sight to behold. They both dueled ferociously. Uh, but Dion appeared to have got the uh, the best of Saint-Georges uh, scoring a hit on him. However, it's uh, it's generally thought that Saint-Georges actually allowed himself to be uh, quote-unquote bested by Dion, uh, either out of deference to Dion's age or perhaps out of gallantry as, uh, uh, as again, after all, he was he was dueling with a lady. So whatever the reason behind the uh, the result, though, it really was quite a, quite a spectacular moment in history for these two uh, incredible figures uh, to be dueling in front of the future king of the United Kingdom there. So uh, anyway, after all of this, after, after this visit uh, to Britain had concluded, uh, Saint-Georges, he headed back to France uh, to meet once again with uh, Duke Philippe, who, again, was doing all that he could to seek political reform and head off the very worst of the French Revolution, which was bearing down on the country very, very quickly. And, uh, in fact, on the 5th of May in 1789, the French Revolution uh, began to intensify with the, with, the encor- with the calling of the Estates General to deal with this, uh, you know, ongoing political crisis. And Saint-Georges, believe it or not, he was there to witness this momentous historical event. He was actually there at what is widely considered to be the beginning of the French Revolution. And from the galleries, he watched the proceedings and heard people speak out against slavery. You know, he'd just come back from Britain. He'd been sharing these abolitionist ideas that he'd got from other famous abolitionists in, in Britain after these discussions and meetings. And now he was there at this meeting of the Estates General, a turning point in world history. It has to be said, the French Revolution is such a pivotal moment, such a pivotal moment in world history. And our mate, our mate Chevalier de Saint-Georges, he watched on as well, you know, as these uh, as these these ideas, this, this, this discussion around so many things, including slavery, was uh, was had before his very eyes and um, even at this stage it's likely uh, that Saint-Georges was torn because he had for almost his entire life been more or less an aristocrat he'd enjoyed the lavish lifestyle of the French upper class as a swordsman as, and, 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 and as a musician but here was a new revolutionary political movement promising equality to everyone, irrespective of their uh, their social class, which of course included slaves, the class that he had been born into on a on a plantation in Guadeloupe. So what was he what was he to do? Was he to side with the aristocracy, where he'd, he'd enjoyed fame and fortune and, and success as a as a swordsman and, and as a musician, or was he to take up the banner of revolution with the other oppressed peoples? Well, his decision was waylaid for a while at least because he, uh, he actually packed up and went back to Britain. This was because Philippe was still doing all he could to unpick the absolute monarchy of Louis XVI. 
Um, and uh, and some even proposed the new duke actually as an alternative to this bloated French monarchy. And it seemed that Louis XVI was a little worried about this happening because he sent Philippe away to Britain on false pretenses to weaken his political position. And this meant that um, on the 14th of July in, uh, in 1789, during, of course, the very famous storming of the Bastille, Saint-Georges was safely in Britain at Philip's uh, request as part of his, uh, you know, as part of his staff. He was away in Britain, far from, uh, from, far from these tumultuous events of the French Revolution. And it was there that Saint-Georges resumed his liaison with British abolitionists, hoping once again to bring the cause of abolitionis- uh, abolitionism back to France with him uh, in a very real way. And in doing so, I will tell you this, he made himself some enemies as well. Uh, one day as he was walking home, he was actually held up in Britain uh, by a man with a pistol who tried to rob him. Now, this proved to be a bad move, even when uh, the would-be thief was then joined by four more attackers. Saint-Georges dispatched all of them effortlessly, suffering on minor injuries that didn't even stop him from giving the scheduled concert that he'd planned for that evening. I mean, what an absolute red-hot pistol this bloke was. This, these men uh, had in all probability been, uh, been sent by abolition, anti-abolitionists to attack him uh, for what he was doing, and instead he had made short work of them which uh, is really, really quite remarkable. You know, there, there were people so determined to see this bloke fail that they sent, uh, I don't know if it's right to call them assassins because they kind of bungled it, but definitely they were supposed to put the scare into him there. But uh, obviously, yeah, stuffed it all up beyond belief and, uh, and uh, Saint-Georges had the, laugh, uh, the last laugh there. But uh, ultimately, Philippe's plans uh, for you know his involvement in in the ongoing uh, revolution as it uh, as it unfolded they they came they unwound they completely unwound the French Revolution had swept through France and people like uh, you know the, the aristocracy or the former aristocracy I should say uh, you know like the Duke here definitely it was a good idea to get the hell out of Dodge and that's exactly what he did um, he headed to Britain himself. And uh, hung out with uh, the Prince of Wales, had a great time, you know, bloody hunting, bloody shoot, drinking champagne, shooting, whatever else, having a great time. Um, and Saint Georges, on the other on the other hand, he took a, a rather different path because on the twenty sixth of August in seventeen eighty nine, revolutionaries declared all French people to be equal, and this finally was the tipping point for Saint Georges because. He once and for all abandoned his aristocratic past and he decided to return to France in favour of the revolution, heading to Lille and being amongst the first to join the National Guard there. Now, interestingly, his new military responsibilities, you know, even as a, even, even after having joined the National Guard, they didn't, they, his responsibilities didn't stop him from performing. On the contrary, he put on a concert every week while still an active member of the military. Um, in 1792, however, of course, things escalated further for Saint-Georges and, uh, and for the country uh, as a whole. Um, but uh, for Saint-Georges, uh, he became, uh, with the creation of the Légion Nationale de Américains et du Midi, once again, apologies for the pronunciation, um, or it was also, as it was sometimes also known, the Black Legion. With the creation of uh, of this legion, it was the very same. The very by the same. By, by the way, the very same legion that I talked about in episode seventy, uh, of which Thomas uh, Thomas Alexandre Dumas was an officer. Uh, this legion was made up of people of color exclusively, and its commander was, of course, none other than Saint Georges himself. The legion is sometimes referred to as the legion, the Legion Saint Georges. Uh, as a result, uh, and people of color. From throughout France, they flocked to join it and to spill their blood in defence of the revolution. Unfortunately, despite the enthusiasm and fervour of this new legion, 
Saint-Georges now had to be, he, he began to fight new battles and not on the field of war. Rather, they were political battles. When ordered to the front, Saint-Georges and his legion, they weren't properly equipped and they didn't have the horses, they didn't have the gear that they needed and I'm sure you can guess as to why this was a regiment filled with people of colour and doubtless was not seen as important or as, uh, as much of a priority as, uh, as many other legions. And what's worse... Saint-Georges himself was actually accused of having misappropriated the funds that were sent to him to pay for his legion. He was accused of using the money to pay his own debts and buy fancy things for himself. And as a result of these accusations, as as a result of this denouncement, Saint-Georges was recalled to Paris to give an account of himself, where, luckily, the Committee for Public Safety realised that He'd actually never been sent money in the first place. So it doesn't take too much to figure out what is going on here and why Saint-Georges, as you know, a, uh, as a man of colour, was, uh, was singled out for this sort of treatment. But luckily and happily, uh, he was exonerated in this situation and, and realised that, uh, yes, the failing had been, uh, no, the failing was not on his part. It had been on, on the part of, of, of various others as well who had perhaps set him up for failure or perhaps had just been grossly incompetent, who knows. But uh, despite the exoneration of its leader, unfortunately, the Légion Saint-Georges, it suffered desertion and the loss of many men as they were sent off elsewhere, although Saint-Georges, Dumas and others still kept the Legion uh, together as best they could. They fought battles, they went on patrols and all the rest of it, until in 1793, Saint-Georges' loyalty to the revolution was once again put to the test. Because after the execution of Louis XVI on the 21st of January, a group of counter-revolutionaries sought to save Marie Antoinette from suffering the same fate as her late husband. They attempted to co-opt Saint-Georges and his legion into helping them save the former queen. So Saint-Georges once again was put to the question, where did his loyalties lie? Was he going to side with the Queen, again, whom, you know, who he had a, a shared history and a close connection with, or was he going to side with the revolution that sought liberty and equality for all? Well, after these counter-revolutionaries approached him and, and more or less ordered him to, uh, to, uh, to take up their cause, he refused them. He refused them. He remained loyal to the revolution. He rejected his time as an opulent aristocrat, uh, you know, enjoying the favour of Marie Antoinette, and he continued to fight for the cause that he believed in, despite the fact that, again, he had lived his life in the lap of luxury, directly benefiting from the system that he had now chosen to fight. So after this, Saint-Georges and his legion, they continued to campaign, distinguishing themselves uh, while fighting in the Netherlands until September in 1793, when the Legion of Saint-Georges finally collapsed after a battle that saw most of its officers captured. Many were released, but Saint-Georges languished in an enemy prison uh, even after the others were set free. And unfortunately, it didn't get much better for him once he was finally released. This really, be- this really was the beginning, the end, the beginning of the end of, uh, of uh, you know, the, the peak of his career as both a swordsman, a soldier and a musician. Because after returning to France, he was arrested and he was imprisoned because he was uh, under suspicion of anti-revolutionary sentiment after his time as a prisoner of the enemy. Now, this, of, this was, of course, during the peak of the Reign of Terror, which you've probably heard of. It was uh, at its height at this point, uh, a period of, of, of great political paranoia where heads were rolling like there, were no t- there was no tomorrow. 
Um, uh, on the 12th of October, for example, Marie Antoinette was guillotined. And on the 31st, just a short time afterwards, Duke Philippe also suffered the same treatment. Saint-Georges was imprisoned under suspicion of, uh, you know, again, of, of counter-revolutionary activity, uh, although never, it was never charged and luckily escaped the same fate. Um, uh, he was still held in prison in a fortress for, for well over a year without any charge being brought against him. But eventually, of course, the reign of terror, it turned in on itself and claimed the life of its very architects, such as uh, Robespierre. And so Saint-Georges, he was finally released as this, uh, as this fervor cooled. But after his release, I'm sorry to say, Saint-Georges unsuccessfully fought very hard to regain his old position and his old legion, but again, to no avail. He never returned to his post. He was never reinstated as a, as a, as a commander of his legion. And after, after a year of doing, you know, fruitlessly everything that he could to reverse his fortunes, he was finally dismissed from the army altogether. Quite a fall from grace for the famously dashing swordsman and violinist who had won the hearts of the French elite in the years beforehand. Some of, his other, some of his other struggles, however, were not in vain. Slavery was abolished throughout France in 1794, and he had done, you know, an, an, he had played an important role in bringing that about. You know, I'm not saying that he did it single-handedly, but uh, he was a very important piece of the puzzle in the abolition of slavery in France and indeed in Britain when it finally took place, when abolition finally took place in uh, in Britain in 1833. Again, he had been one of the activists, one of the uh, one of the agitators that had helped to bring uh, to, to bring this to fruition, but the last years of Saint George's life they are uh, they are a little more opaque and are certainly a far cry from the the splendor and the uh, and the opulence that he enjoyed as a younger man. We're not one hundred percent sure what happened to him uh, after his time as a soldier. He may have travelled to Saint Domingue in uh, seventeen ninety six and taken part in a slave revolt there. Although that's that's never been conclusively proven and and, and does does almost feel to be just speculation. He just kind of disappeared for a while there, to be honest, before re-emerging in the later part of the 1790s as he attempted to start up another orchestra. Uh, his connections with the Freemasons certainly helped once again as he as he uh, busied himself with uh, with his uh, with his music, you know, giving up on the finally giving up on the sword and picking up the violin once again, well and truly. Um, and he uh, he ultimately led a spiritual successor to the old Concert Olympique uh, called Le Cercle de l'Harmonie. Saint-Georges by this stage was now in his 50s and once again poured his energy into music, uh, writing things like this. <clears throat> Towards the end of my life, I was particularly devoted to my violin and also saying things like, never before did I play it so well. Uh, but how fortunate he was as a musician after the revolution is still a matter of some debate, actually. He may have lived in abject poverty, according to some. Uh, while, while others think that he may have actually been able to pull together a comfortable enough living again as a, as, as, as a conductor, as a concertmaster, as someone leading an orchestra. But no matter how you slice it, it was a far cry from the lavish opulence of the pre-revolution days where he you know, performed for or even played alongside royalty. But of course, all stories must come to an end, and the final years of Joseph Boulogne, the uh, the Chevalier de Saint Georges, while they weren't in any way a reflection of the uh, the the beginning, the, the his early years as as a young man, he did see out his final years playing music, playing in an orchestra, as he so very as he so very much loved to do. But of course, his tale does come to an end. On the 12th of June in 1799, Saint-Georges, who had been unwell for quite some time, 
he finally succumbed to a gangrenous infection of his bladder. He was only 53, his life tragically cut short by this illness. But happily, his legacy lives on, of course, to this very day. While much of his music was tragically lost during the French French Revolution, a lot of it has survived. And while it was broadly forgotten after his death, more recently, it has had a huge resurgence in popularity. You can listen to it now on Spotify, you know, other, other services like that. I highly recommend his uh, La Monte Anonyme overture. It's, uh, it, it, really is a, it really is a joy to listen to. But more broadly, what a life he lived. Musician, composer, swordsman, abolitionist, revolutionary, soldier, all in the space of a single lifetime. And as I said before, it really does make you feel like a little bit of an underachiever, doesn't it? But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Joseph Poulon, Chevalier du Saint-Georges. And uh, I mean, once again, what what a life he lived. What a life he lived. I hope you enjoyed his story. I certainly, I certainly learned a thing or two about... Uh, um, uh, you know, about not just this bloke, but also the wider context of the history he lived in. I love talking about stories like this because it does give you a, a more personal perspective on, on huge momentous events like the French Revolution. So I certainly hope you got a, a thing or two out of it. Anyway, um, going to close out the show with the normal boring housekeeping stuff, halfhousehistory.net, of course, or halfhousehistory.com. Uh, you can enter either of those sites and, uh, and, and enjoy all the previous episodes. Find links to subscribe. If you want to leave me a review on iTunes, I'd certainly appreciate it. Uh, important updates when it comes to the sh- when it comes to the store. I am running low on a certain stock. I've sold out of magnets entirely. Um, so if you want to get your hands on a t-shirt or uh, maybe some badges or a notebook, now's the time to do it because uh, I don't know if or when I'll be able to restock. And so I don't want anyone to miss out. If you've been thinking about it, definitely jump across to uh, uh, halfhousehistory.bigcartel.com and put your order in today. Still free shipping worldwide, free shipping worldwide, of course, that hasn't changed. But uh, I, I'd, hate to, I'd hate to run out of stuff and, and have you miss out on the, uh, on the shirts or the, uh, or the notebooks or the, uh, or the badges you so richly crave. If you want to support the show in another way, of course, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory and sign up as a supporter there. Get next to all sorts of benefits, behind the scenes, uh, uncut episodes. You get uh, early access to shows as well as the show notes and all sorts of other stuff like that. And if you're a Patreon supporter, make sure to jump over to my Discord, bit.ly slash Discord. Uh, where you can submit uh, topic suggestions. Lots of people have been making suggestions there. And of course, there's a place to discuss the episodes. And if you're a Patreon supporter, there's an exclusive uh, uh, throne room where you can come and hang out with other patron, other other supporters of, uh, of the show, whatever else, uh, and chat about things. So uh, please, yeah, please do. It is, it's, of course, uh, free for anyone to join. Uh, bit.ly slash join Riley's Discord. Anyway. That's enough of that nonsense. That is that for another show here. Thanks so much for hanging out with me uh, for this episode. It's been uh, it's been good fun, and I'll see you back here next week for more Half Hours History. In the meantime, leaving you with a question posed, adapted by Redditor Good Ghibli Wibbly, which certainly is a, a very powerful username, <clears throat> who asks, If Saint-Georges has been decomposing for so long, why can we still find his music? <laughs>